Hello, hello, and welcome to the Someday Somehow, where we learn how to dream together. I'm your host, Sarah Buses, and this week we're talking to Renee Monzon, a humble, soft-hearted, strong-willed justice enthusiast looking to change the way the world looks at criminal defendants. Renee is a criminal defense attorney clerking with a judge in southern Minnesota, and I got to know her over the past year through a book club about race in America um, responding to the killing of George Floyd. We recorded this episode about a month ago, and now at its release, the world is once again watching Minneapolis, watching the trial of Derek Chauvin for the killing of George Floyd. And just like when I spoke with Taji and Kendra, this is maybe a difficult conversation. It was a difficult and moving conversation when Renee and I had it. And we wrestle a lot with the reality of what the justice system in America looks like right now, as well as talking about what her vision and her dream for the future of the justice system is through the lens of an attorney. I hope you enjoy this episode. I hope it's challenging and engaging. And um, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Renee and the thoughtfulness with which she carries herself. Enjoy. How's it going? Hi, Sarah. It's going well. Awesome. Um, so I would love it if you would share a little bit about your story, what you're doing right now, and how you got there for our listeners. Of course. So my name is Renee Monzon. I am a judicial law clerk working for a state district court judge in southern Minnesota. I'm also a licensed attorney. And after my clerkship, I'm hoping to become a criminal defense attorney. My journey to where I am right now with with law school and pursuing criminal defense uh, is a bit wild, but I always enjoy (laughs) looking at how deep the roots are and how long I have been, uh, that God has been molding me for this work. Hmm. But bottom line is that I became an attorney to help people. That's always been my goal. I am a strong Enneagram too. I just, I, <laughs> I just wonder how many people. Enneagram two lawyers there are. Like to me, that doesn't feel like a natural connection, but I love that mm-hmm. it's a natural connection for you. Yes. So it's important to note, I, I never wanted to be a lawyer. I was opposed <laughs> to it for so many years. My parents always said that I would uh, make a great lawyer or judge. <laughs> As a little kid, I would write persuasive par- er, persuasive essays to my parents, and I would pick pointless arguments with no my little way. sister just for the fun of it. <laughs> but I didn't have any lawyers in my life. I only saw attorneys as the media portrayed them. Mm-hmm. So I would always dismiss those suggestions with like, nah, I don't have the right personality to be mm-hmm. a lawyer. It was never an option in my mind. I uh, 
when I started undergrad, I was a political science major and I was taking all of the international relations and, mm-hmm. and uh, international politics classes that I could. And for many years, my dream was to work for the United Nations to help people on a global scale fix mm. the big problems of the world. And then halfway through undergrad, I realized that I would need some sort of graduate degree to do that work. <laughs> the, uh, the interim president at my undergrad a man named Peter Gerhardt, and I noticed that he had specialized in international law. So, oh, well, that's close enough. Maybe he has some <laughs> advice. Uh, I met with him, and about a minute into explaining why I was interested in international relations, he stopped me and said, it sounds like you're actually inter- interested in international law. Have you considered law school? <laughs> and I brushed it off with my normal, oh my gosh. I, I'm not built to be a lawyer. <laughs> Uh, but he encouraged me to look into it. And for the first time in my life, I did. Hmm. So flash forward to fall of 2017, I'm starting law school at Case Western in Cleveland. I was pursuing a law degree with a specialization in international law. And very soon after I started law school, I discovered that I did not want to do international law. (laughs) What does international law mean? Yeah, uh, hard to explain because it's not really enforceable (laughs) it's not because it doesn't really exist (laughs) it does right you have the united nations and Mm -hmm. these intergovernmental organizations that uh make rules and things like that that you have to follow these treaties that people can sign on to but there's really no enforcement behind them Mm -hmm. right like if you violate an international covenant or something that you've signed on to they're like ah don't do that Mm -hmm. so our world is held together by like pieces of thread pretty much wonderful Uh (laughs) uh-huh i love talking to you i learned so much (laughs) (laughs) yeah so as as one of my professors put it international law is not real law um (laughs) And I actually became fascinated with the American court system Hmm. and fell in love with the very work that I had convinced myself that I wasn't equipped to do. Hmm. Uh, But my path for the first two years of law school was defined by suggestion and avoidance and kind of going down the path of least resistance. Hmm. I had already told myself that I could never do criminal law. I had (laughs) interned at a juvenile court uh, at the end of undergrad and it terrified me. It was scary and emotional and difficult. And I mm. said, nope, not going to do that. Too messy. Uh-huh. So in law school, I jumped from civil litigation to legal research to real estate transactions. Oh, my goodness. By the end of, I know, I was all over the place. <laughs> By the end of my second year, I was all set up to do an underwriting internship with the title company and was just so thankful to have everything figured out, right? Hmm. And then God just completely transformed my heart. Hmm. I don't know when it started exactly. It could have been the moot court competition where I got to write a brief and argue for a fictional criminal defendant. Uh, Maybe it was having professors who were incredible public defenders kind of seeding their lectures with their stories. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe it was realizing how far I had drifted from my original motivation behind going to law school right? To help people to solve problems, to lift up the hurting and the disadvantaged. Yeah. Whatever the reason, by the time I started my internship at the title company in Minneapolis, 
I knew that I was going to work in criminal defense after law school. Hmm. So while I spent my work hours digging through property records and working on contracts, (laughs) I was listening to the serial podcast season on the Cleveland justice system Hmm. during my commutes. I was reading Brian Stevenson's book, Just Mercy, during my lunch breaks. Hmm. I watched documentaries on criminal justice in my downtime. I could not get enough. Yeah. I couldn't learn enough. What do you think changed that like made you um, like crave, you know, that side of the justice system? I think it was realizing how much I didn't know. Hmm. Right. These, these stories. And again, being, I was a very sheltered white kid growing up in Southern California. (laughs) And I, I had no idea how the justice system kind of traps people inside of it Mm -hmm. and, you know, what, what the case looks like, how it's so hard for criminal defendants to get a favorable outcome, even Mm -hmm. though there's this presumption of innocence. And as I was learning, right, my, my heart was simultaneously breaking over these injustices that I was learning about for the first time. Mm And also just on fire to dedicate my life and skills to criminal justice. Yeah. And uh, at the end of my summer internship with the title company, they actually gave me the opportunity to come back and work for them after graduation. Oh, wow. And in perhaps one of the most reckless things I've ever done, (laughs) I turned them down. I love that. I I love a good quitting, turning down job offer story. (laughs) Right. Which is especially at that time, I didn't know that we would be hit with a pandemic and a, you know, job shortage and all these yeah. things. So right? this is like 2019? Yep. Okay. Yep. Uh, so I walked away from a guaranteed job that mm-hmm. I thoroughly enjoyed so that I could pursue a career in criminal defense. Wow. And that's what I've strived to do. I started my final year of law school as a probably overeager legal intern in the criminal justice clinic, <laughs> uh, where I got to represent real criminal defendants and real cases under the supervision of my professor. Hmm. I learned so much over those few months. We'd probably need an entire episode just to talk through those experiences. Yeah, yeah I'm sure. But the short version is that I came into the criminal justice clinic not knowing how I could ever have fruitful attorney-client relationships because I have always been in a position of privilege Hmm. and my clients have not. Hmm. And I didn't know how to bridge that divide. I didn't know if that divide could be bridged, Hmm. but I so quickly learned that you just love people. Hmm. The, The people accused of crimes are wonderful humans with a life and a story just as or often more complex than my own. Yeah. And I get to work my butt off making sure that they are protected and advocated for during their interaction with the justice system, a system stacked against defendants, despite this presumption of innocence. Yeah. Yeah. So I continued representing criminal defendants during my last semester of law school in the appellate clinic, formulating arguments and writing briefs for defendants who had been harmed by some error in the trial court level. Mm Mm-hmm. My uh, my classmates would affectionately tease me because I called every client my favorite, 
Uh, no matter <laughs> no matter the alleged crime, no matter the client's story or the frustrations of their case, hmm. I always found something to delight in. And hmm. I had so much fun learning to step into the work, leading yeah. with kindness and love and letting the law follow. Yeah. Did you, what was their rea- your classmates' reaction to like this, um, approach to the law like where are they were they like what are you doing this isn't like what lawyers do or I don't know I'm just so curious because to me I'm like this is like the opposite of like what you know average American Mm -hmm. thinks when they hear the word lawyer right yes and they like again I was in the appellate clinic especially with incredibly smart and capable people Mm -hmm. um and this, right, lawyering, that is their job. Mm-hmm. This is their duty and your job is to get the best outcome for your client, right? To, to work hard, to, to meet the goals, to win the case. Mm-hmm. But sometimes like winning a case is impossible. Sometimes mm-hmm. you're fighting an uphill battle that is so steep, right? Yeah. And at the end of the day, if you don't win and you haven't loved this person in front of you, what do you have to show? Hmm. Right? Yeah. I I want to have moments with clients where they feel supported and heard. Mm-hmm. Not just, you know, that I did a good job writing a brief for them. Um I kind of tangent story. <laughs> <laughs> uh I faced a big dilemma in the criminal or in the appellate clinic when in order to get a good settlement outcome for our clients, we would have to buddy up to uh, the attorney on the other side, mm-hmm. right? You're like, oh my gosh, we know our clients are really difficult. They're annoying, mm. blah, 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 all these things. And as we were talking about this conversation with, with my professor and my classmate, Mm-hmm. I said, yeah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. I, I decided I was like, I am never going to say anything disparaging about wow. my clients, even wow. if it would be a nice shortcut. Like yeah. there is always going to be a way to get a good outcome without saying something negative about my clients. Hmm. And that again, bringing that, because we had that conversation and then we brought it to, you know, the other six students in the clinic and everybody seemed very much like, yeah, it's fine. They're not going to know. Right. And you're doing this to help the client. And I was like, yes, but I could help them in other ways. Yeah. So I felt like the criminal justice clinic was so much learning, like developing that heart for criminal defendants. Right. Mm -hmm. And learning their value and Mm -hmm. Even just, like, seeing them as people. Even, like, in the media, we see, you know, um, criminal defendants um, on, like, the news. And they're just talked about, like, totally Mm -hmm. inhumane ways, right? I mean, you Mm -hmm. can talk about it more than I can. But I, especially, Mm -hmm. like, 
people of color who have committed crimes versus white folks who have committed yep. crimes. There's a huge difference in how they're portrayed on the five o'clock news, right? Yes. <laughs> the photo yes. that they choose to represent them in every single news story, mm -hmm. every hour is wildly, there's a difference there. Yeah. 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 So I had the criminal justice clinic that was focused on, you know, recognizing their value. And then the appellate mm -hmm. clinic that was really me learning how I wanted to be a lawyer, right? Mm. What I wanted to carry and keep close, what values I wanted mm. to uh, to define me in my work. Yeah. Um, but I finished my law degree. I graduated <laughs> uh, in Passed May of last the year. the bar. I did. <laughs> um, I moved to Minneapolis on the weekend of the protest surrounding George Floyd's murder. I had been planning to move out that last weekend in May forever. It was pure coincidence, but I so needed to be in the Twin Cities for that weekend mm. in the coming months. I had spent two years asking God why he was calling me to Minnesota. Wow. And now he had given me a heart for criminal justice and placed mm. me in the city that was becoming the epicenter yeah. of activism and conversations about systemic racism in our justice system. Yeah was just so incredible. And so much good came out of that season of hurt and learning, including our friendship, meeting you through yeah. Taji and Kendra's book group. Mm -hmm. um, but I spent that summer alongside the, the learning and the asking questions surrounding uh, race and justice. I was also studying for the bar exam and volunteering at a public defender's office. It was my first time actually working with public defenders and I loved mm. it. Even in the moments that I was deeply frustrated uh, by the injustice <laughs> I saw in the bail hearings alone, these low stakes routine hearings that they mm. would let us interns handle, right? Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, Minnesota's public defender's office had a hiring freeze when I was, uh, when I had passed the bar and was frantically searching for a job. Yeah. <laughs> but I was so blessed to get this clerkship down in Southern Minnesota I get to research and write and learn about the judicial system from the mm -hmm. perspective of the bench. Yeah. I get to see every kind of case that walks in the door, uh, even though I'm still partial to my criminal law assignments. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how I got to where I am today. So now looking forward, mm -hmm. what are you dreaming about for your future as a lawyer? Yes. So I still, as of right now, I'm a clerk, right? And I felt mm -hmm. that putting criminal defense on my heart for the last year, two years now. Um, so obviously that is still going to be a large part. But even more recently, he has really put death penalty work on my heart this desire to represent people who have been sentenced to death to if I can help them in some way I want to. I don't know whether that's representing them in their appeals and post-conviction actions or like writing them letters and comforting their families hmm. or if it's standing in front of legislatures and advocating for the elimination of the death penalty. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what form it will take. Mm -hmm. But I know that just as God branded my heart for criminal justice, he's now fanning the flames for me to do death penalty work. Yeah. Wow. Um, this 
this yearning, this dreaming had a bit more of a concrete start, uh, it was really born out of brokenness. Uh, from the end of 2020 to the beginning of 2021, 13 people uh, were executed by the federal government. And to put that in context, there were more federal executions in the last seven months of Trump's presidency than there were in the 70 years prior. Wow. Uh, and this is only looking at federal cases. This doesn't even take into account the 28 states that still have the death penalty on the books. Yeah. But these executions just broke me. Seeing so many people executed because the courts refused to address legitimate evidentiary issues, legal questions, and mental health concerns in these cases, just paving the way for execution. Hmm. Um, a few of these stories, right? You have like Daniel Lee Lewis, who was the, the first of the executions to take place after a 17 year gap, right? His last yeah. words were, you're killing an innocent man. Uh, Wesley Perky, he had, he had developed Alzheimer's while on death row. Uh, and had spent his entire life suffering from schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, depression, and psychosis. Yeah. You have you had a uh, two two people who were executed for a crime they committed as teenagers. Yeah. And they were convicted by a jury who later supported reducing their sentence. Mm. Right. Um, Lisa Montgomery was executed after the Supreme Court actually overturned the lower court stays of execution due to her serious mental illnesses, they issued a midnight order that didn't even address the merits of the issue. Hmm. You had uh, Dustin Higgs who was sentenced to death for his role in a mur murder. He, mm -hmm. His co-defendant who actually committed the murders was sentenced to life and later admitted that Higgs had no involvement in the murder. Earlier in the case, the prosecutors had changed their theory and their approach in order to exact the maximum punishment. Hmm. Uh, and Higgs was executed four days before Biden's inauguration. Wow. All of these executions <laughs> used a lethal injection drug that had fallen out of favor because of previous botched executions that raised Eighth Amendment cruel and unusual punishment concerns. All of these executions occurred during a pandemic where attorneys had limited resources and access to their clients. Mm -hmm. And again, these are just the federal executions from the past year. I can tell you stories from state courts from past decades that will pull on your heartstrings and illustrate the, the blatant and deep injustices in our system. Mm -hmm. But these are the executions that broke me. I'm not saying any of these people were innocent. I don't have those answers, mm -hmm. but I do know that they didn't deserve to die. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I don't want to get into the politics on this because it's messy. I know some people <laughs> believe that the death penalty is an appropriate punishment for certain crimes. I personally believe that it's never acceptable for us to execute another human for a crime they committed. And maybe this is just my reckless optimism speaking, but I believe <laughs> that there is always hope for redemption. Yeah. But no matter where you fall on whether the death penalty should be enforced, our current justice system has a rate of error that is far too high for us to be executing people. Hmm. 
Since 1973, over 173 people have been released from death row because of their innocence. Wow. One person has been exonerated for every 10 people who have been executed. Wow. Like, could, could you imagine if we had that rate of error in any other area of our lives? Right. Right? If, if faulty car manufacturing meant that 10% yeah. of vehicles would spontaneously combust maybe we would do something. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we would look at, you know, the deeper issue rather mm-hmm. than just say, oh, we'll just keep fixing the ones that keep breaking. Right. But yeah. how, how does society respond to these people on death row? Hmm. It's they deserve it. The, yeah. Who cares if they're not guilty? They've probably done something else wrong. Hmm. And uh, I, I keep saying that this breaks me because I don't have a better way to say it it yeah it weighs on my heart so heavily in a way that i i need to do something yeah and again i i don't know what it's going to look like mhm i don't know if this is a lifelong career i don't know if this is something i do on the side um but it, it is something that is terrifying to step into. Yeah. Right. I feel, <laughs> I feel like I keep uh, ending up developing a heart for the things that I told myself I couldn't do. Isn't that funny? <laughs> it's a, it's a common theme. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, it's, I can't go to law school. I can never be a lawyer. I go yeah. to law school. Oh, I, I, I can't do criminal law. It's too scary and stressful. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, maybe I'll do criminal law. <laughs> And then even anything but death row. (laughs) Right, right, right. I was like, I could handle misdemeanors. Like there is a lot of good uh, that can be done in the world of misdemeanors and so many injustices, right? People think that it's small potatoes, but they actually have Mm. deep impacts on people's lives. So I was like, ah, that sounds great. (laughs) And it's like, oh no, you have a heart for death penalty work. Um, I remember after reading Just Mercy, Uh, One of my professors from law school, Michael Benza, amazing man. Uh, He does death penalty work. He he worked as a public defender who did death penalty cases for a lot of his career. And uh, I went to him after I finished reading the book, right? I'm like sobbing (laughs) and I, I don't understand. And I was just so torn apart. And I was like, I read a book and I am broken. How do you do this every day? Right. And it was a beautiful conversation with him about, you know, (laughs) partially finding distractions from it. Right. He said that times he would come home from, from executions. And the thing that brought him joy was like his dogs running up to him because his dogs don't know what happened today. Right. Yeah. Um, part of it is, you know, the moments that you share with criminal defendants, with people on death row. Mm. He told a story of like sharing a Snickers bar with one of his first clients before, you know, he left the public defender's office. Mm. Um, and those, those are the moments that I'm so looking forward to. Yeah. Of being someone who listens to them. Yeah. Who advocates for them when nobody else wants to, when the cards are stacked against them. Mm-hmm. 
And like, I, I know that the chances of success are so slim. Yeah. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, like, yes, there are the cases of wrongful convictions, people who have been wrongfully accused, and those are serious and need to be addressed. But a lot of the times you're sitting there with somebody who did commit a crime, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And you're saying you didn't get a fair treatment in the system because of this. We're going to attack that, right? Or right. I don't believe you know, arguing for any reason why yeah. they should be serving a life sentence instead yeah. of the death penalty. Yeah. Again, I don't know what I'll be doing. And it's it's scary to jump into. Mm-hmm. Um, again, especially when you have such a high chance of failure and failure has somebody's life on the line. Yeah. Right? This is... Yeah all sorts of high stakes gambling that I did not think I would ever want to participate in. I did not sign up for this. <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's so beautiful too that, you know, the scariest the scariest ledges to step out onto often have the most rewarding results mm-hmm. and I mean, what you were saying about such a low success rate. It just reminds me of what you were saying earlier about your work in um, criminal defense courts. Am I saying that right? (laughs) Yes, that works. This is me faking lawyer talk. Um, (laughs) And just like, you know, even if you can't um, get a win for your client or whatever, like, you know, however you can show them love and respect and personhood, it's like you have to take that as a win as well Mm -hmm. and obviously death row is a different story too but um Mm -hmm. i mean it's it's a admirable attitude i think about something that could be so hopeless looking from the outside Mm -hmm. yeah and i i think this this dreaming has been really good for me in uh helping me gain a sense of humility in my work Hmm. Right. Because I, (laughs) I would love it if death penalty work was obsolete. Yeah. If there wasn't a reason for it to exist anymore. Right. Yes, Lord. (laughs) (laughs) And right. Just removing myself and my work Hmm. from, from the equation, from, from the good that comes out of it. Yeah. If I never get to work on a death penalty case, because they abolished the death penalty amazing <laughs> love it <laughs> right and so it's it's this funny place of mm. like hoping and dreaming for work for for a job mm. for opportunities that i don't want to exist yeah that's so interesting yeah and it's really fun to know that you know whether i spend two weeks or 20 years on death penalty work right that there is good in it Mm -hmm. that efforts won't go unnoticed or unwanted Mm -hmm. that small amounts can make a difference yeah yes this sounds like spouting very optimistic (laughs) (laughs) 
little catchphrases and whatnot. But, you know, again, that, what, you know, what my professor said about sharing a Snickers bar with his client, that's, I so believe that's the heart of it all. Yeah. Right. If you, if you don't have an argument to make, if every argument you have made is struck down by the courts, spend half an hour chatting with your client. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Be a friend, be yeah. a voice who listens. Yeah. And that's what I'm so looking forward to mm. in, you know, in any regular criminal defense that I do, uh, or if I have the opportunity to do that death penalty litigation, I just like, I, again, I'm a two. I love people. <laughs> I want to, I want to help people. Uh, I so crave those, those moments. And you've heard, you know, public defenders often get, <laughs> get a, a bad reputation because it's this machine, this conveyor belt process, right? Mm, yeah. Public defenders are overworked. They have yeah. too many people that can't spend enough time with, with each of their clients. Yeah. Um, your stories, right, about attorneys who haven't met their clients before going to trial, about, <laughs> yeah. you know, getting cases mixed up because they don't know faces and names because yeah. there's so much to do. Yeah. And I, I want to fight against that so hard. Hmm. I want to start every conversation I have with clients asking about how their day is. Yeah. Right. And just genuinely invest in people beyond their legal representation. I want to know what you're dreaming about for America's criminal justice system at large. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's a really big question. And I think a lot of people are thinking about the criminal justice system right now after Mm -hmm. the past year. Right. And a lot of us are not equipped necessarily, speaking for myself, to know you know, all the ins and outs and what is exactly broken. And I'm not saying that you have all the answers. Mm -hmm. I just, I think it would be really interesting to hear your perspective and your thoughts on this Mm -hmm. topic. Yeah. So our, our system, a little bit of history, most of our criminal justice system uh, was formed out of post civil war era, uh, holding slaves accountable for when they escaped, mm-hmm. right? And that's that was modern policing, these groups of people who would go and, you know, capture slaves and enforce punishment against yeah. people who had, ex- had escaped. And so <laughs> we, if we want to fix our criminal justice system, we need to come to terms with its messy history, mm-hmm. right? that from the beginning, the premise was so flawed and broken. And this system of just punishing people, I I get it that we have a system of laws, that there are rules that as a society we have decided are good and important to follow. Mm -hmm. I am in full support of that. 
and right even there being some amount of I hesitate to say punishment but right some accountability yeah right for when people (laughs) don't follow these rules I believe as a whole our punishments are too high Hmm. right you have some states like Minnesota that have sentencing guidelines where you you know you have a a past history that puts you here on the chart and you have a Hmm. the severity of the current charge that puts you here you follow the grid and this is the range that you can be sentenced to the amount Mm -hmm. of months that you'll be sitting in prison for and I across the board I think that sentences are too high Hmm. that right for for somebody who committed a theft that the difference between serving one month and six months doesn't have a huge deterrent effect Hmm. right and if we have these people so many people I mentioned it earlier getting trapped in the criminal justice system yeah once you have had an offense it is so easier to so easy to get another yeah right because you you know your first offense you're you're sentenced and you're out on probation you violate one probation condition and you're back in court yeah I think I was just reading something today about somebody who was out on probation and he didn't have a job because he didn't have an ID anymore mm-hmm. and then he couldn't pay his like $35 a month for his ankle bracelet or something and yes. so then he was in violation of his probation because he couldn't get a job because he didn't have an ID and I was yes. just like, oh, my gosh, it's just like a cycle. Like, you are just stuck. Absolutely. And that is what happens every single day. Yeah. And so I I think we need to come up with alternative remedies, right? Hmm. Having programs for people instead of, uh, instead of jail sentences or probation, right? Hmm. I really like what... Uh, the move toward drug courts that a lot of states are doing now where there is a special court designed for people who were charged with drug related offenses. Hmm. And it's so much more focused on rehabilitation and education and just consistently checking in with this, these people making sure they're doing okay and not having harsh sentences that would prevent them from living a normal life right right like really lifting people up and putting them in positions uh to to recover over time yeah but right now we only have these drug courts yeah the the entire rest of the criminal justice system still goes through the same process Mm -hmm. right maybe instead of crazy sentences for domestic violence charges, you know, depending on the situation, if there is counseling that people could go to, if there are, uh, you know, housing options that we could get people, there there needs to be so much more support for criminal defendants Mm -hmm. than just punishment, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think to your question, how to, what my dreams for the criminal justice system look like is just more support for criminal defendants, right? Hmm. Treating them as humans instead of a plague. 
yeah. right? Yeah. That if you if you were in their position, right? What would you have needed? Yeah. To get out of there to to yeah. help the situation. And it is going to take more time and more money and more resources. Hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Which is what we constantly run up against. Especially. Yeah, I mean, you just said like yeah. uh, we're all talking about public defenders and how they don't even remember, mm-hmm. you know, their clients' names. So, yeah, it's like if you want more public defenders, they can defend their clients better. It's like it's all just money. <laughs> it is. Right? Mhm. Yeah. Um, and and that's that's what we're looking at, but I'm I'm really hoping for a shift, right? Yeah if you have judges with a little bit of a different heart right Mm -hmm. prosecutors who see their jobs as pursuing justice instead of obtaining convictions yeah right it's gonna be as much of a heart and mind shift as it is you know a financial (laughs) resources yeah um and the, the problems that we see in the justice system are the same problems that we, you know, stem from the same problems that we see in society. Yeah. Things, you know, regarding uh, racism and uh, income inequality and all these problems that are everywhere and they truly impact every sphere of life, including the justice system. Hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me today. It's great of to course. see your face. <laughs> I know it was a little uh, dreary talking about it's, death penalty and all that. I know. But it is it is good and beautiful work that I am excited to step into. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. This was super enlightening and informative and um, a little bit sobering, but really beautiful. So thanks so much Renee of course thank you Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Someday Somehow. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Renee Monzon. It was so beautiful and poignant, and Renee is um, such a joy to talk to about the criminal justice system. I think she just has such a beautiful and unique perspective, and she is a wealth of knowledge. So um, I just want to thank Renee for being on the episode today. I also want to thank Trevor Ransom, as always, for the use of his song Cambridge 2018 as our theme song. And um, if you enjoyed this episode, please follow along on Instagram. Send us a message about something that you're dreaming about. We would love to chat with you. I want this to be more than just a one-way street where I'm talking to you. I love to hear back from people that are listening. Our next episode will be coming out April 23rd. Thanks again for listening, and as always, thanks for catching me.